Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Uh, a few weeks ago, I preached a message uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning, and the title of the message, I don't know how it was titled on, on the internet, but uh, <clears throat> the gist of the message was, God is not in control. And I made the statement that God has not been in control on planet Earth since the Garden of Eden. Now that is a, a, a very shocking statement to uh, a lot of people because modern theology and popular theology says that God is running everything, that God is in control of everything. And so uh, I know that that statement is a bold statement and I, and I uh, gave evidence of that to a degree that day, but uh, this subject uh, and this statement requires further explanation. Now there are many of you that are sitting here today that you've been in our church a long time and you've heard me preach on these things, but we have newer people and uh, sometimes, you know, you make a statement and people accept it, but then there's a question in their mind because it's so different from what they've heard before. And, uh, and I am probably more aware right now this morning of the importance of solid biblical teaching, balanced teaching on all aspects of the things we believe so that there is a broad and, and deep foundation so that we don't just say uh, little things, make little statements and, and draw little conclusions from portions of the scripture, but that what we say is, bound, is, is founded upon a broad foundation in the word of God. And so the Lord told me to go back and, and go into a little bit more depth, not as much as I maybe have done in other times, but sufficiently enough to support this statement that God is not in control. Now, I know God is in control, has sold a lot of bumper stickers and a lot of refrigerator magnets and such. But the statement is not accurate. And like I said a couple weeks ago or several weeks ago, uh, God has not been in control of this planet since the Garden of Eden. And I'm gonna show you what I mean by that. Amen. See, the, the doctrine of sovereignty has been preached uh, uh, to the excess in modern times. There is a truth of sovereignty, but not to the extent that people take it, and I'll explain that as we go along. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if, if this challenges your thinking, just uh, keep an open mind, and when I say an open mind, I, I mean open to the scriptures. Not necessarily open to me, but open to the scriptures that you read, amen? Uh, when, when I make this statement, the, another question came to my mind and, and the question is why did redemption unfold the way it did? Why did the redemption of mankind unfold the way it did? Why did it happen the way it did? Why was there a virgin birth? You know, we know that God sent his son and God could, create, could have brought Jesus into Galilee preaching the gospel from the wilderness and no one had ever known him. He could have, you know, God created Adam from the dust. God could have sent 
his son here and created a physical body right out of the dust, a grown man, and sent him right into Jerusalem preaching the gospel. Why did he come as a baby? God did not send the baby Jesus to us to give us Christmas carols, okay? There is a deep and, and important reason why Christ came the way he did, why he, why, why he was born of a virgin. Uh, there, there, there's a reason for his sinless life that he lived. There's a reason for his atoning death on the cross. There is a reason for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, it, and, and the reason for these things are all tied back to what I'm talking about today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, have you found verse number 21? Let's start in verse 20. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits. Now, I, I, I'm not, I don't like those preachers that have you repeat everything he says about every 20 seconds, so you know, say that word. But, so I'm not gonna say that, but notice the word first fruits. <laughs> notice the word first, first fruits. He has become the first fruit. What does first fruits mean? It means the beginning of something that is more to come. Isn't that right? He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now notice verse 21. This is the verse I want you to see. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now we know that by man came death. That's talking about Adam. By man came death, and we know that by another man, Christ, came the resurrection of the dead. But now this statement is saying even something more significant than that. This statement says, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For because, you can say it this way, for because by man came death, then by man also came the resurrection from the dead. In other words, since man was responsible for introducing death and bringing death to the human race, then man was responsible to restore life. Do you see that? Since by man came death, then by man, because of that, by man it was necessary that someone come, another man, and bring life. The emphasis is on the fact that it was a man that did the damage and a man had to correct that damage. Can you see that? Uh, over in verse number 45, look at verse 45. It says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Well, who is the last Adam? Jesus Christ, isn't that right? So notice this, as it is written, the first man, Adam, or let, let's say it like, let's read the whole, the whole verse. So, it, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam became, excuse me, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So he's talking about the first Adam and the last Adam. Now, if you go down a little bit further, just skip a couple of verses, go down to verse number 47. Notice the difference here. It's, it's, uh, 
It's a very uh, 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 important distinction, but you can miss it if you're not paying attention. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. That would be Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. That would be the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice in verse 45, it calls him the last Adam. In verse 47, it calls him the second man. Do you see that? that that's important. There's a significance there. The first Adam, hold your place. We're gonna, we're gonna go back. We're gonna go to Romans anyway in a few minutes, but hold your place here and go to chapter uh, five. Romans chapter five. Look at the very last part of verse number 14. We won't read the whole verse because I want to get back to what I'm talking about. Romans five, the last part of verse number 14. Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam was a type of Christ. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 15. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Both Adam and Christ were archetypical men. You might say, now what does that mean? I, I, don't, I don't look up fancy words just for the sake of saying fancy words. But I have tried to find a term that precisely identified what I'm saying here. And the word archetypical is the very best word for this. Something that is archetypical means that it is, the closest synonym to it is prototype. But it's actually more powerful than the word prototype. Something that is, that is archetypical, that means that it is the first and the highest model from which all of its class develops and, 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 and uh, proceeds. That everything in its class comes from that archetype, takes its, its, its uh, purpose, its ideal, its, it, everything about it is patterned and is, an, and is a, a replicate, not just patterned, but a replicate of what followed. Adam was an archetypical man in that the human race came from him. And the human race partook of his nature just like he partook of God's nature. Go, hold your place here and go to, Roma, uh, go to excuse me, Genesis and go to the fifth chapter. Real quick so we don't spend a lot of time. Genesis 5. Remember what the Bible says about God? He created man in his own image and his own likeness. You remember that? Sure you do. Look at uh, Genesis 5 verse 3. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Well, when God created man in his own likeness and after his image, that had to do with more than just his physical being. It had to do with his soul, his entire makeup, spirit, soul, and body. Well, well Adam produced a man in his own image. Now the spirit came from God, but the flesh of his son, Seth, came from Adam and Eve. And so because of that, there was, there, there was a partaking of the nature or a passing down of the nature of Adam, which at this time had become a fallen nature. So Adam 
was an archetypical man in that he was the head, the beginning of, of a race, of a, a creation. All creation, human creation, came from Adam. Well, Christ is an archetypical man because he is the head of a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is the work of a new creation. Now, the first creation was corrupted because Adam was corrupted. The second creation, the new creation that comes from Christ can never be corrupted because Christ can never be corrupted. And everyone that partakes of Christ partakes of his perfect nature. Amen. Every person that partakes of Christ partakes of his perfect nature. And there is no uh, error, there is no sin, there is no failure, there is no disappointment. A perfect son of God. Amen. Go now to Romans chapter 5. I didn't explain this, the second man. Adam became the, became the, Jesus, excuse me, became the last Adam. But in verse 47 there of 1 Corinthians 15, it said he is the second man. The reason he's the second man, he's the last. There will, listen, there, was, there were two archetypical men, Adam and Christ. There will never be another one. The first one and the last one. Christ was the last Adam. There's not coming another creation. Christ is the last Adam, but he's the second man because there are other men to follow after him. I'm one of them. You're one of them. Amen. Whether you're male or female, you're still one of, uh, of those that come from Christ. Remember it said it, that, that he is, has become the first fruits. The first fruits. He is the head of the new creation and all of us who are created in Christ are following him and there's one and another and another and another and another and another and millions and billions of this new creation. So he was the last Adam, but he was the second man. More to come and they're still coming. Amen. Have you found Romans chapter five? Now, I want to read through some verses here. We're going to come back and look at some, at some detail. Uh, but I want you to just pay, a, pay attention to just one thing in the verses I'm going to read. Because these verses, if you're not careful, you'll read one verse. And it, I mean, it'll just draw you in. There's so much uh, information in every verse. You, you can just get focused. And, and we're going to come back and look at all that. But I just want you to focus on one concept that appears over and over and over and over and over again in these passages. So discipline yourself, okay? To not get drawn in further than I want you to go right now, Okay? I want you to notice in these verses how one man is contrasted with another man. You see it over and over for the one man and the other man. The one man being Adam, the other man being Christ. In, in, in verse number 12, therefore justice through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Uh, let's go down to verse 15. For the free gift is not like the offense for if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man. Notice there's another one man, one man being Adam, second one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. 
Uh, verse number 17, for if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, you could say one man, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through the one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For if, verse 19, for if by one's, one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous. So you can see in this passage that it's reinforcing what we read in 1 Corinthians 15 there, that since by one man came death, then by another man came the resurrection of the life. For if by one man came condemnation, then by one man came uh, justification. You see that? So the emphasis is on the fact that, there, that because a man did one thing, then a man would have to do something else. Hallelujah. Now it says in verse number 12, Romans 5:12 Therefore as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned Now in the New Testament this will help you a lot if you'll just log this away in your in your thinking and not forget it In the New Testament when the when uh, it speaks of death the overwhelming majority of the time, it is not talking about physical death. Unless the passage that you're reading, the, con the context of that passage makes it clear that it, has to be that it has to be talking about physical death, you should always expect that it's talking about spiritual death. Now, I haven't gone through you know, every passage like I did not long ago on the law issue, you know, haven't done that on this issue and looked at every occurrence of the word death. But I'm, I'm comfortably uh, sure that I can say almost, if not all the references of death in the New Testament, the, the word death is, unless it's the context is specifically talking about physical death, it's talking about spiritual death. When the Bible in the New Testament particularly talks about death as a concept, not just something that occurred in, in, in a person's life where they, were, they physically died, but when the New Testament talks about death as a concept, it is always talking about spiritual death. So that'll help you, and, I, and I'll show you this as, as we go on. Now we know that this passage is talking about spiritual death because it says that uh, just as through one man's sin entered the world. Does anybody remember how that happened? Anybody remember? Does anybody not remember? Sin, how did sin enter the world? Sin entered the world when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Isn't that right? Hold your place here and go to Genesis. And go to the second chapter of Genesis. I tell you, the, the book, the first few chapters of Genesis has so much foundational revelation in it that if you don't understand creation and what happened in the beginning, you will be mixed up all of your spiritual life. Amen. In uh, the second chapter of Genesis, in verse number 17, 
The Lord God said to Adam and Eve, but, the, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Hold your place and go over to the fifth chapter of Genesis. Verse five says, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. That's quite a few days. Dan, how many days is that? Come on, crank it up, son. <laughs> 930 years times 365 days. It's a lot of days. But he said here, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We'll go back to Romans chapter five. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, well, sin entered the world when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. That's when sin entered the world. And it said, death entered through sin. Well, according to what God told Adam, death entered into the world the day they ate of that fruit. So that cannot be talking about physical death because it took a few years before Cain killed Abel. We don't know how long that was, but it wasn't the same day. Cain wasn't even born yet. Abel wasn't even born. So death came into the world through sin on the very day that sin came into the world. He said, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you go back to the original Hebrew of, of, of Genesis uh, chapter two, and you can see this in the margin. If you have a, <clears throat> excuse me, if you have a good Bible or reference Bible, you'll see a, a note there in the margin. And it says in the Hebrew, it says that in in the, when it says in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the Hebrew, it says dying, in dying, you shall die. And the word dying there is, is actually a plural word. And so it, or, or the, the uh, scholars say that the more accurate translation is that in dying, you shall die. So that's telling us that there's some kind of death that is not obvious to the outward man and it happened the day Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit. They, they died spiritually. Now spiritual death is not like physical death. Physical death, we all know what that is. Physical death is, when, is, is on the cellular level in your physical bodies. You know, your heart stops or your brain stops functioning or something, you know, and all of the processes of life in your body begin to, begin to stop. And throughout your bodies, uh, your body, this, you know, trillion, I guess, of cells or something, you know, they say that's in our bodies, they all begin to die. Starved of oxygen and blood, they begin to die. And, and within just a few moments, your body is dead. That's something that happens on a physical level. And, and, when, when a body is dead, you can still see the body, but it, it can't function. It has no life. It can't, it's, it's there, but it will soon rot away. 
Isn't that right? Because it, it's, it's, the life is gone and, and it can neither, that person can neither think or act or, or do anything. It's dead. Spirits, we know this, that God is a spirit. And we know that he created man in his own image and after his likeness and that man is also a spirit. Angels, of course, are all spirit beings. All of the heavenly hosts, you know, the Bible calls angels ministering spirits that are sent forth to minister for us. We also know that, that man is a spirit. He possesses a soul and he lives in a physical body. Remember in 1 Thessalonians, it says, I pray that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved. Well, those are three separate things. There's a lot of confusion in the church world over spirit and soul. And a lot of people think that they're synonymous. They mean the same thing. They don't mean the same thing. They're three different things. The spirit of man is that part of man that is conscious of God, that knows God. It's the part of man that is born again. It's the part of man that is lost in, in trespasses and sin before he gets born again, after he is born again. It's the spirit of man that receives the new creation, that, that new life. The soul of man is, is a different part of man's makeup. It's, it'll help you a lot if you'll remember this little, this little saying and say it to yourself long enough until it gets established in you. Say, I am a spirit, I possess a soul, and I live. Now notice, notice, I am a spirit. I, my spirit, possesses a soul, and I, my spirit, lives in a physical body. Amen. Your physical body is your earth suit. You can't stay here on the earth without your earth suit. Isn't that right? Just like you can't, you can't exist in outer space without a space suit. The environment's not right for you. If you take that space suit off, this, the environment of space will, is not suitable for you to live there. Amen. That you're not designed to live there. Well, without your body, you can't live here. Not now. You can't live here. Humans cannot live here. Now, some spirits are allowed to live here, but humans can't live here without their bodies. You could walk out today, you know, and step out in the highway in front of an of a, of a 18-wheeler, you know, and... Your body might still be here, might be in pieces, scraped up off the ground, you know, but your spirit would immediately jump out of your body. Your spirit can't stay here, it has to leave. It can't stay here without a body. And so every person that when their body dies, their spirit has to leave. It either has to go to heaven or it has to go to hell. Those are the only two options. There aren't any other options. There isn't a mezzanine someplace that you go to, you know, that you can get somebody to help you get out of. Amen. Either go to heaven or you go to hell. So, so we have a body for a purpose, and that is to enable us to carry out our assignments and to live our life the way God intends for us to live it here on this planet. But you are a spirit. 
Spirits by nature are eternal. Spirits can never die. Angels, God obviously, but angels, you know, demon spirits, all spirit, everyone that's in the class of spirits, human beings as well, will live consciously somewhere throughout eternity. Every one of us in this room, we tend to think, you know, because we're naturally minded so often, we think, well, I was born in such and such a time and, you know, I lived so many years. Listen, you are going to be alive and conscious. You, not somebody else, you are going to be alive and conscious somewhere for the endless ages of eternity. There will be no end to your existence. You're going to, you're going to live somewhere. Whether it's with God or it's, or it's uh, away from God eternally, you're going to live somewhere. Because spirits can never die in that sense, in the sense of, of, of uh, ceasing to live, ceasing to exist like a body can. Body dies and eventually it'll cease to exist. I mean, it'll t- return to the earth. Spirits, that's not true. But, so when we're talking about spiritual death, we're not talking about the cessation of, of existence or passing away in that sense. The Bible describes spiritual death this way. Go with me to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. And look at verse two. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden, have hidden his face from you. Your, your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Spiritual death, when we talk about spiritual death, we're talking about being separated from God. Now again, the spirit is still alive, but it's been cut off from God. In fact, go hold your place and go with, uh, well, you don't have to hold your place. We're not gonna come back here. Uh, but go to Ephesians and look at, <clears throat> hallelujah. Look at the fourth chapter. Verse 17 says, but this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Now notice verse 18. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Notice the unsaved are alienated from the life of God. Now the spirit of the unsaved man is alive in the sense that he's, he's a functioning spirit and he's conscious, but he's been cut off from the life of God. That's what we refer to when we refer to spiritual death. And so again, going back to what we said earlier in the New Testament, when it's talking about death as a concept, it's always talking about spiritual death. And man was responsible 
for bringing spiritual death into this world through his sin. Remember that? Romans 5, by sin, by man's sin into the world and death through sin. In, uh, let's look at one more picture of this. As you know me, I like to have all the scriptures. Amen. I, I want to know for certainty what I believe. Go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Let's start in verse number seven, Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now notice verse nine. I was alive once without the law or apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Well, this couldn't be talking about physical death, could it? It couldn't be because Paul wrote it. <laughs> I mean, he wrote it after this occurred, so he couldn't have been dead. This has to be talking about spiritual death. He said, I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What in the world is that talking about? This is talking about the concept that we put the, the, the name on or the title on, though it's not found in the Bible, just to explain. This is the person reaching the age of accountability. When a child is born, the body of that child obviously comes from the mother and father. But God, the Bible says God is the father of spirits. God is the creator of spirits. When, when a husband and wife have a child, a child is conceived. They don't conceive the child's spirit. They conceive the child's body. But the spirit comes from God. And it's an eternal spirit. And that spirit that is conceived... Uh, is, is alive, it knows God. There's no sin in that spirit. And so that little baby is born with a, with a body that came from Adam and, and it's taken on the characteristics of the fall of Adam in that it's selfish, it's only interested in what it wants and, and, and so forth. And you see that in little babies. I mean, you know, they wanna eat, they wanna, they wanna be held, they want what they want. They get a little older, they want their toys and they don't want anybody else to have their toys. If you take their toys, they'll bite you. Isn't that right? They'll hit you, they'll fight. What? That's just selfishness. That's bound up in a child's nature, but it's a natural physical nature that came from Adam. The spirit came from God. That child is not aware spiritually of sin. Well, the child is not accountable we say that the, we call it the age of accountability when a child reaches a certain, now backing up, if a little baby or a young child like that dies, they go to heaven because the spirit is alive unto God. The commandment of the law, the consciousness of right and wrong, that's what he said the law produced. He said the law, when the commandment came, he said, I wouldn't even know what covetousness is unless I'd heard the commandment, thou shalt not covet. Now it's all I want to do is covet. 
Isn't that right? It, it awakened that in my flesh and then it deceived me and it killed me spiritually. When, I yield, when a person yields to that, when the age of accountability is reached and that child consciously understands the difference between right and wrong, Grant, just take my word for it, they will choose wrong. <laughs> At some point, the choice will be made and they will consciously disobey their conscience and do what they know is wrong. That's when the commandment comes, sin revives and they die. That's what Paul was talking about here. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Well, again, this is showing us there is a difference between spiritual death and physical death. Amen. Now, since a man was responsible for selling out the human race to sin, then a man would have to win it back. The obligation was on man. Again, God created man perfect, but because he didn't exercise his authority like he should have, he allowed Satan to come in, and when Satan tempted him, he yielded to that temptation and when he did that, when Adam and Eve did that, they sold all of us out. His nature passed down to all of us in our flesh. And we were little babies and little toddlers. We didn't know better. But the day came because that, that innate sin, the, the, the Bible in, in Romans chapter six calls it the old man in the flesh. That old, that old man, that flesh, that sin nature in our flesh. Eventually, he was just lay, laying there dormant, just waiting till that child got of a certain age and, and there's no particular age, whatever, it, uh, it's different for each individual child. But when that child became conscious and he, and, he, and he disobeyed what he knew, not just because mama said so, but because he knew this is wrong, spiritual death occurred. Well, Adam brought that about and it says that if you go on reading in Romans 5 and so death passed to all men for all have sinned. So this, this, this came upon the whole human race and whose fault was it? It was man's fault. Now what did man do from the very beginning? Started pointing fingers. That woman that God, that woman you gave me, she brought me this fruit, isn't that right? And the woman said, it was that serpent that came. <laughs> and man's been doing that ever since. Pointing the finger of blame, but the blame is man. Isn't that right? Well, a man sold the human family out and a man would have to get it back. It's a big problem though. Nobody available to do that. There was no one qualified. Let's go over uh, and we'll, we'll close with this. We'll come back next time. Go to uh, Job. You do know that the book of Job is, is considered the oldest. It's said to be the oldest document in the, in the Old Testament. We know that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know, the first five books of the Bible were not written first. The, the, the events that happened happened first. But, uh, or some of them, but the account of, of creation, Moses wrote this. He, Moses wasn't around that creation. 
but he, he supernaturally was inspired to write the book of Genesis. He wrote the account of creation, but he wasn't there. Job lived before Moses. Bible scholars believe that Job was probably a contemporary of Abraham, that they probably lived, lived about the same time. Job was a, a very intensely spiritual man, very aware spiritually of things, way beyond his years. And, uh, and, he, and he has this to say. Go to chapter nine, Job nine. And let's look at verse one and two, and then we're gonna skip down to uh, verse number 28. Job nine, one. And Job answered and said, truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? How in the world? Well, we know the answer, but we'll get to that later. Go over to verse 28. This is, this is the consciousness of fallen man who is aware of his lost condition. Verse 28 says, I am afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, the original Greek here says lie, lie soap. He said, if, I know you will not hold me innocent. This is such a pitiful passage of scripture. The, 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 it almost brings tears to your eyes when you, when you consider the desperate sense of being lost. And he says, if I wash myself with snow water, Cleanse my hands with lye soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he, God, is not a man as I am. That I may answer him and that we should go together, go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. The Amplified Bible says, I think the older King James says days man. The margin says umpire, where it says mediator. The Amplified Bible says there's no, there's no umpire between us who would put his hands on both of us. And, and, and the Amplified adds this, this uh, gloss. It says, uh, would to God there were, but there wasn't. See, there was no man that could span the gap between fallen man and God because every man was fallen. There was none righteous, not one. And so thank God Jesus came. God stepped in the gap and we know that there is one mediator between God and men. Who? The man. Who? The man. Yeah, but what is he? How does the scripture read? There is one mediator between God and men. The man... The man. That's the way it reads. The man, the man, the man, Christ, not God, the man. Jesus was God. He's always been God. He was God when he was here in the flesh. He was God on the cross. He was God in the resurrection and the ascension. He's always been God. But what he did, he did not do as God because though Jesus was God, he was also man. That's a great mystery that no one can explain. I, I, anybody that tells you they fully understand the mystery of, of the incarnation of Christ and the fact that he's all God and all men, they're fooling you. 
They're fooling. They're pulling your leg because they do not fully understand. It's beyond comprehension. But it's a fact that Jesus was both God and man. And as a man, he became the mediator between God and men. Amen? Go and we'll close with this. I know we said we'd close with the other, but I've, I've modified that. <laughs> Where do I want to go? Glory to God. Go to Philippians. And I'll think about closing with this one. Verse, chapter two, verse five. Chapter two, verse five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, or like the margin says, something to be held on to, to be equal with God. Being in the form of God, he did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself of no reputation. The original Hebrew says, I mean Greek here says he emptied himself. Though he was God, he emptied himself. He, that doesn't mean he ceased to be God. What it means is that he emptied himself of his divine privileges as God. He laid aside his divine privileges. Everything that he could do because he was God, he laid that aside and took upon himself the limitations of man. And so everything he did in his earthly ministry from, from the time he was born to the time that, that uh, he gave up the ghost on the cross, everything he did, he did as a man. He did not act out of, his, out of the, the resources of his divine prerogatives. This is why Jesus had to be born of a, of a, of a virgin and come into this earth as a baby. Like I said, God could, create, could have created Jesus a body out of the dust back in the backside of the desert somewhere and just brought him into Jerusalem to preach the gospel. But see, he had, to, he had to fully partake of humanity. That means to be born, conceived, and born of a woman. Now, he didn't have an earthly father. God, the Holy Ghost, was his father. And because of that, he didn't have that sin nature in his flesh. Now, he was free from that. But in every other degree, he was like every one of us. When, because Jesus didn't have that inherent sin nature that you and I inherited from our, from our fathers, he didn't have that. He was exactly like Adam. Only where I, Adam was created, Jesus was conceived and born and grew up to a man. But as far as his spiritual nature and his, and his makeup and, and, and his sinlessness and all of that, he was just like Adam. So he had to partake of human experience. He had to, he had to, he had to in, in all ways, the scripture says, he had to be made like unto his brethren so that he would be the right kind of sacrifice and the right kind of high priest for us. Someone, you know, his, his sinless life. Jesus lived a sinless life. Why is that important? It's important because he, he, he did what Adam should have done. What Adam could have done, Jesus actually performed. He actually performed and lived a sinless life. But he didn't live a sinless life because he was God. He lived a sinless life as a man who came from God with no sin in his life 
And the Bible says he was in all points tempted like we are. In every way. You know, we turn up our nose sometimes at people who are tempted to do certain things. You know, there are certain, there are certain sins that I'm just not tempted with. We won't go into all of those, okay? <clears throat> I just, I'm, <clears throat> that does not tempt me. Some of those things do not tempt me. And you might feel the same way. Then you, you find somebody that is tempted along those ways and, and then yields those temptations. You turn your nose up and say, well, that's just disgusting. Well, <clears throat> the fact is you've never been tempted like that. So you can't turn your nose up. We need to preach that sin is sin. We need to stand for righteousness and what's right and wrong. But we don't have to have, and we should not, and we do not have haughty attitudes towards those who yield to sin because if you were tempted along the same lines, how would you do? Say, well, I, I just wouldn't yield. Oh, really? I can, I can tell you how you would do. You would probably do the way you do with the other temptations you are tempted with. What a superb job you do resisting all of those. Wonderful you. Amen. Side, side story, side message. I'll just leave it there. Jesus was tempted in all ways like we were, yet without sin. He came into this planet experienced everything we experience. And you've heard me tell this before. I just love it. I didn't realize this till a few years ago. I, it just hit me one day. I was reading the story of Jesus when he was 12. You've heard me tell about this, you know. He was 12 years old and his parents, you know, went to, the family went to Jerusalem for the feast, you know, and on the way home, you know, he had stayed over and nobody knew it. And so they get, you know, out from, you know, a couple of days away and they start looking for him among the relatives. He's not there. They run back to Jerusalem, search all over Jerusalem. They find him in the temple. And Mary's like, what are you thinking? Your father and I have been worrying and looking for you. And Jesus said, what? Didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Typical 12-year-old. Just a typical 12-year-old. Just in la-la land. If you've had, had preteens, you know what I'm talking about. They go through that stage where you just, you talk to them and it's like you're talking to a brick wall. They're looking at you, they're nodding their head. Yes, sir, yes, sir, yes. And they, well, they have no idea what you said. <laughs> Jesus went through that without sin. But he still, he, he experienced everything that we do growing up. But yet he lived a sinless life. He went to the cross as a man to pay the debt Glory to God. But then as God, he took our sins. As God, he took our sins on the cross. God himself provided a sacrifice because there was no sacrifice available. There was not another man who could do it. Nobody qualified, so God sent one. Oh, hallelujah. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.